I've got news for anybody listening to this podcast. If your business, if your brand, if your product doesn't really matter to you, it's not going to matter to your customers. But if you really are passionate about it, you believe, and you're sending your peers or supervisor or subordinates or friends texts at two in the morning on a Thursday because you've just stumbled upon the most incredible world can't live without fill in the blank. Well, that's the type of team that builds great brands. Welcome to the Promo Kitchen podcast. This week, we are very excited to have the CEO of HBG, Chris Anderson. And Chris is joining us for the series that we have that's been ongoing for mergers and acquisitions and sort of looking at how everything works from all the different angles. And we're really excited to have Chris here as HPG has been one of the largest growing companies in the promotional products industry. And it feels like every week there's a new acquisition, but I know that's not true at all. It just seems like you're quite the prolific man there. So welcome, Chris. Thank you, Kate. I appreciate the introduction and it's a pleasure to be here with you. We're excited to have you. So I'm Kate Plummer. I'm a chef at Promo Kitchen and I'm joined with Andrea Pereira, who's a sous chef at Promo Kitchen. And we'll start with the basic question of, tell us about yourself and how you came to be at HPG. Well, I've taken somewhat of a winding path over the last 20 or so years. I started at a business based in Salt Lake City, Utah called Handstands that some of the listeners may be acquainted with. And my job at Handstands back when I started in early 2002 was to do something aside from the mouse pads that the business had been based on since its founding in 1983. And the company was operated by two incredible individuals, one of whom I had known since I was a 14-year-old kid working at a tractor store, and I had completed my education. And I went to him one day, and I just said, you know, I can't help but think that there's more to be unlocked at handstands. How about you give me a crack at it? And so it was interesting because I thought that I had the better end of the deal and come to find out that there had been three others who had tried the same thing and all fell within months. But the bottom line was that I came in and didn't have that knowledge, which was likely a good thing. And after several months, decided that an opportunity for us would be to go into the car air freshener market for both retail and promotional. The idea being that it was a consumable, somewhat subscriptive product that if you fall in love with a certain fragrance, it's something you may buy over and over again. Or likewise, if you were a company looking for a compelling way to impart a message, particularly to somebody who is in a car every day, what better way for that message to be imparted than to see that branded logo on a car air freshener. So I set off on a journey to turn a mouse pad company into a car air freshener manufacturer. And again, it was one of those stories that I won't bore you with the nitty gritty details today, but suffice it to say again, Had I known then when I know now, there's no way I would have chased it because the odds of success were so low. But in spite of those low odds, and perhaps because of my ignorance, we pushed through, put together an incredible team, and within an eight-year span, became the largest manufacturer of car air fresheners in North America and had a domestic market share number one position with the products distributed at virtually every retailer that you could imagine throughout the U.S. and Canada but also had created a nice promotional business. And fast forward a few years later, I went from being the young guy at that business who had come up with this novel idea to eventually becoming the CEO of that enterprise. And it was, again, one of those scenarios that 
had I known what I didn't know, I would have been far more fearful and trepidatious about going into it. But thankfully, I was too young to even understand what imposter syndrome was and just kind of chased after it and made it happen in that role. And over time, came up with the idea that if we're really going to grow this business, we need to have multiple vectors for success. And the first was organic growth through the launch of additional products. And the second was potentially through acquisitions. So over time, did my first acquisition of a business as I was the CEO of that company, and then a second and then a third, and really found it to be an interesting scenario where if done right, one plus one could equal three. That's my favorite equation of math. And it's quite elusive, though, that oftentimes you think you have the makings for it, only to find out that one plus one equaled less than two because it was a bad fit. And so that was a lesson that I learned several years back now and that continues to inform the way that I operate my role today. And going full circle, how I ended up as the CEO of HPG was back in 2016. In fact, we're nearing the five-year anniversary of this transaction. Energizer, the Pink Bunny Battery Company, acquired Handstands, the company that I was operating. And it was an exciting day. It was really, if nothing else, the culmination of over a decade's worth of hard work and the proving of a thesis that we truly had created a great business and one that had exceeded everyone's wild expectations. But we also wanted to go global. At that point in time, we were in 128 countries, which I know sounds like a lot, but the reality of it is, in terms of global infrastructure, there was a lot more to be done. And that was really the reasoning behind the Energizer transaction, the opportunity to take this incredible brand and then distribution network and overlay it against the business that we had created. So Energizer closed on that transaction. And not too long thereafter, I received a phone call from some of the executive team at Energizer where they asked if I had any interest in acquiring the promotional and legacy mousepad business back from them, that they were primarily focused on the retail side of the business. I love the promotional side of it. And so it really represented everything I was looking for in the next opportunity, that I love to be entrepreneurial. There was a lot of the DNA in the business that it still, to me, represented something that was not only a business, but a passion that we were passionate about delighting end consumers. We were passionate about win-win relationships. And ultimately, I saw a real opportunity to take this unit back from Energizer and go out and see if we couldn't give it a go on our own. And so we did that. It was myself and a partner named Rod Stewart, who I'd worked with as our CFO of the old business for some time, and the general manager of that business, Jason Fogg. The three of us bought it back from Energizer and ran it independently for about a year and a half. And at the end of that year and a half period, there were a couple of indications to me that while it had been a lot of fun to get back to the grassroots type business that we had worked in prior to growing and prior to selling to Energizer, there was also the other side of it, which was that we were in a rapidly consolidating market, that it was very clear that on the supplier side, there was an increasing divide between the large suppliers and the smaller independent suppliers. And we certainly were not among the ranks of the largest suppliers. And as I look back at the lessons that I had learned in the prior 15 or so years, and what it was that was at our disposal in terms of opportunities to scale the business, to become a better partner for our customers, 
that's where the mindset shifted again that, well, I know a thing or two about acquiring and selling businesses and partnerships. I may shift the strategy here and look for a partner that we'll want to work with to help scale this thing within the promo business, because clearly there's consolidation that's occurring that is somewhat behind other industries, that many other industries, they had their consolidation wave years, if not decades ago, where in the promotional industry, it was really coming to play in full effect then. So I made a number of phone calls and was able to meet with some of the leading figures on the supplier side of the promotional industry. And there were a couple of key takeaways as I spent that time. First, what an interesting and gracious community the promotional industry is. And what I mean by that is that I came from a background where it was almost like a Cold War scenario where you would have very tense relationships with those that you deemed competitors. You certainly, if you were neighbors, wouldn't invite them over to barbecue. And at the end of the day, it was a lot less community and a lot more competition if you're looking at the seas of capitalism here. And yet it was quite the opposite that I found as I reached out to the CEOs and leadership teams of the large suppliers in our industry. They were gracious. They were forthcoming with information. They were generous of spirit and insight. And it really told me and informed what I wanted to do and where I wanted to be, that if I had an option, I wanted to grow within the promotional industry and grow as rapidly as possible, both myself personally, but more importantly, the business that I had a stewardship in. And I interacted with some of the senior leadership of Hub Penn at the time. And they had a private equity sponsor involved. And the private equity sponsor made it very clear that they saw the same opportunity, that this was an industry that certainly was in the midst of a consolidation wave and that they saw a clear opportunity to create value. And in their mind, creating value didn't mean making money for them or their shareholders. Instead, creating value was offering a better solution, a better experience for the end customer and the distributor. That if we do that, then the necessary rewards on the back end will follow. But it has to be in that order that everything you do needs to first and foremost be focused on adding value for your customers and for the constituents of your business. So at that point, it was almost, you know, the rom-com moment where they have me at hello, that this is certainly consistent with the way that I've operated and that have been successful over the years. And likewise, where I've seen less than successful ventures, it's largely been because of a misunderstanding of what the order of operations or priorities should be. That if you start with the end in mind, which is a delighted end user, and work your way backwards through the value chain, you're generally going to have better odds of success instead of, you know, the cigar smoke filled room, dimly lit with a bunch of guys saying, here's how we're going to make money. And that rarely works in 2021. Instead, it's diversity of thought, it's focusing on adding value at each step. And at the end of the day, it's being obsessive about that end user's experience that generally is what's going to make you relevant, if not provide a successful formula as we continue to evolve, not only in this industry, but in any industry that's a product or service-based function. And so in late 2018, HPG, as it was then loosely known, acquired Handstands Promo the business that I had partnered with Rod and Jason to carve out from Energizer. 
And at that point, it was off to the races that I had agreed to join the senior leadership team. And a few months later, was named CEO of the combined companies. And they were midway through the consolidation wave. So I certainly cannot take credit for the acquisitions that occurred prior to my time at the company. And it was jumping on a bus that was already in the fast lane and picking up speed, the best way for me to put it. But I love to run. And so it was an absolute riot jumping onto that bus that had just acquired two different businesses shortly before they'd acquired handstands. They'd acquired Borgadio from Jason Lukash and Mike Simzek on the West Coast of uh, the United States, and had likewise acquired BCG Creations from the Miller family in Montreal, Canada, shortly thereafter. And so it was not that they had been waiting for Chris to come along to get active on the acquisition front. Instead, it was already happening. And my job was really threefold. It was first to help bring together these companies that have been acquired, each of whom successful in their own right, under a common banner. The second was to make sure that one and one equaled three, that from a business standpoint, that we were doing the right things for our customers. Because no matter how smart we think we are, if we're not winning with our customers, we're a bunch of dummies. And so we had to look backwards at it and in essence, start at the very beginning of here's what it is to interact, say, with a hub pen. Here's a hub pen. This pen may seem like a humble writing instrument, but over the course of its life, it's going to find its way into upwards of eight to 10 sets of hands who will lay claim to this pen. What is it from a supplier standpoint that we can do better, that we can improve the experience of each one of those individuals who encounter this writing instrument? And in turn, what is it we can do every step of the way to make it easier to put that pen in the hands of a user if I'm a distributor or if I'm an independent rep? So those types of questions are what I think about, dream about, eat, sleep, and, and at the end of the day, obsess about with our team at HPG. And it's been a lot of fun, but it leads up to then that third mandate, which is always keeping an eye out for a potential good fit for another acquisitional partner. But it really is in that order that we're first and foremost going to worry about what it is that we have today before we're ever worried about tomorrow's acquisition. And from there, it's what are we doing within our business to better serve the customer? And then finally, are there potential partners that we should consider bringing into our ecosystem or onto our bus down the road? So that's a long answer to your very short question. <laughs> Well, it's so interesting to sort of see how people get into industries, but also to sort of see how HPG has grown from Hub Pen buying this and sort of creating the giant that it is. And when people look at your acquisitions, like I've talked to some people where they're just like, I don't get it. And I was like, okay, but it obviously made sense to you. So what do you look at when you're even considering a company? In our preliminary talk, you said there were five key areas to be satisfied. So can you yeah. walk us through what those five key areas are? And then whether or not there's sometimes just something about a company that you look at and you're like, that's right for us. Yeah, well, first and foremost, the question we ask is from a people standpoint, do we have a fit? That it can be an absolutely incredible business that's a good fit by every other measure. But if culturally or people-wise, it's not a fit, then we don't do the deal. And it's as simple as that, but that's an immediate disqualifier. And it's interesting because quite often 
there's a reputation that if you have an investment sponsor or a backer involved in the deal, that you may end up doing things that otherwise you wouldn't do because of that external pressure. But it's funny, the private equity world has changed over the last several years. It used to be a world that was driven by IQ, that the smartest in the room won. And increasingly, the wise and sophisticated private equity firms are realizing that EQ is equally important, that being smart, being financially sophisticated, those are all table stakes in the investment world. But what separates now the successful from the less successful is the ability to work with others, the ability to create shared purpose. And at the end of the day, as I've worked with our current private equity sponsor, 10X, in the HPG transformation, that has been one of the Hippocratic oaths that at the end of the day, you know, I used the barbecue analogy earlier, and it's apropos to this, that if I'm working with a potential acquisition or our leadership team is working with a potential acquisition. If our CFO comes to me and she says, Chris, you know what? Culturally, they're not a fit. Well, it's pencils down. And we have said no to otherwise what appeared to be very good fits because of that EQ component, that it needs to be the type of group of individuals, all of whom we're not afraid to have them be examples of who we are, what we do, and at the end of the day, what can be expected of us. So people is number one. Number two, it's the category served or the overall business that they're in, that there are certain areas of promo that HPG is seeking to expand its authority and its ability to be a one-stop shop. But one-stop shops can be very dangerous because over time, one of the lessons I've learned is that specialists usually beat generalists in the long run, that there are very few companies that decided they're going to do everything under the sun and do each one of those exceptionally well. And so at HPG, we've made the decision that, for instance, apparel, we're not an apparel supplier. We may have a couple of hats and things like that that are tangentially related to apparel. But generally speaking, we're hard goods. That's an area where over time, we've established some credibility starting with Hub Pen almost 60 years ago. And from there, we have branched out organically. But that branching out organically, and this is within each of the legacy brands, there is a defined architecture. And it goes back to what you and I talked about when we first discussed this topic that so often in business, acquisitions take on an almost tumor-like form. And I remember when I was first contemplating what it meant to successfully acquire an integrated business, it reminded me of this house that was not too far from where I grew up. And it started off a fairly normal house, pitched roof. It sounds cliche, but a white picket fence out front. And over time, this house started to transition. And there was an addition added to the side, then an addition added to the front. And then this massive structure to park cars in was somewhat unnaturally shoved in the back. And it became not a thoughtfully designed home. Instead, it grew more like a tumor that they just kept adding on because they could, but not necessarily because they should. And so at HPG, one of the big questions we ask is the Jurassic Park question. 
And I'm sure they're going to put this in my obituary someday. But I found it to be so universally true that there's that impassioned scene in Jurassic Park where Jeff Goldblum talks about the flaw in the thinking up to that point, that they had been so focused on whether or not they could, they didn't stop to ask whether or not they should. And so for us, it comes down to category discipline. We certainly could get into any number of different businesses, but should we? And what is it that we're good at that we can add value by continuing to participate in? So first people, second category. Third, and these are in no particular order, so I'm giving them numerical labels. But at the end of the day, any one of these is going to be a disqualifier. But I start off with people as the one that even if everything else is perfect, if it's not a culture fit, we don't do it. If it's inconsistent with our mission, vision, and values in terms of who we are and the way that we conduct ourselves, our respect for the individual, et cetera, we don't do the deal. But number three is asking the question, is this going to be a win for the customer? Because all too often acquisitions occur and it was clearly a win operationally for say the business that was acquired or acquired, but it never really actually drove any benefit for that end customer. And if that's the case, generally speaking, you've spent a lot of time, money and effort on something that's likely not necessary. Because if you're doing something that doesn't create a better experience for the customer, you likely have competitors who are going down that path right now. And chances are, down the road, if we project this thing out, they're going to be winning because of that ability to better meet the customer's needs, as opposed to you who did something because you thought you're really smart. You thought that you perhaps had a differentiator, but the reality of it was, You didn't stop and ask the question, is this really going to benefit the customer? And I'll give you a case in point. Last year, in the midst of the pandemic, which we're not doing this on video, which is a good thing for the listeners, because what they would see of me is bags under my eyes and a lot more gray in uh, (laughs) the, the COVID beard that I've been sporting. And, you know, my head's as shiny as ever. But the bottom line is that It was certainly a grueling and refining experience to weather the COVID storms, but we decided to increase the degree of difficulty and acquire a business in the midst of COVID when we acquired web business promotions based in Egan, Minnesota. And the reason we made that acquisition was simple, that one of the biggest pieces of feedback that we had received from our distributor partners is they were looking for a multi-line hard goods supplier, such as HPG to bring some authority and cohesiveness to personal care that bring us solutions in personal care categories. Because up to that point in time, we really didn't participate. There were some limited incursions, but we didn't produce our own lip balms. We didn't produce our own hand sanitizers. We didn't produce lotions or sunscreens. And if we're going to do it, we wanted to do it right. We wanted to manufacture the product domestically. We have certainly walk the walk in terms of product and social compliance. So a big issue for us was simply that if I'm going to put our name on a product that a customer or customer's children are going to put on them, it had better be above and beyond in terms of product safety and compliance and efficacy. So that was something that was part of our long-term strategy and plan. Then enter COVID. 
But we had to ask the question, if we double down right now in the midst of COVID and bring another business into our ecosystem, one that provides us the ability to produce those products in-house, in the long term, does the customer win? If we were looking at it surely for the operating convenience of HPG, I would have rather not done that deal on September 1st of 2020. But if we looked at it from the long term and even in the midterm, are we going to be a better partner for our customers and end users? Absolutely. There's no question that we were providing them the ability to bundle products, that the bundling was happening already. They were perhaps buying a bag from Debco, a tote or a backpack, say from Org Audio. And wouldn't it be great if we could put some lip balm for the event in that bag and source it all from one supplier? Well, that is something now that we could do that previously we couldn't. And it satisfied certainly that third question. But at the end of the day, we were able to do so all the while still straying true to the previous two that I talked about from a people standpoint. Is this the type of group that we want to be tied to? We asked that question and it came back a yes. And it came back a yes because we'd spent the time that we've found over time that you can do your financial diligence, you can do your operational diligence, but there's no replacement for spending time together. So I took more than one flight as the only guy on that Delta airliner. So Delta should be thanking me now. My last flight, I was in the back of the bus. Back then, upgrades were pretty easy to get. But these days, my economy tickets decidedly economy. But the bottom line, by spending that time together, by understanding we have a fit in terms of category, we have a fit in terms of people, and we have a fit in terms of being a better partner for our customers, those are all some of the necessary preconditions for saying yes to a deal. And from there, there's the other side of it. And this is where everything balances out that it all comes down to math as well. Does the math make sense? Are we trying to push water uphill as far as making something work? If so, well, let's recognize it early and let's understand if we need to take another evaluation of something and determine a different go or alternatively just put our pencils down. But there is a math component to it, just as there is to every element of life, that there's going to have to be some analytical discipline in terms of whether or not something makes sense. And it reminds me of one of my mentors in business who taught me this really interesting interview question. And I haven't used it for a while, but I'm going to pull it out the next time I have to interview somebody. And it's, when was the last time that you balanced or checked your checking account against the bank statement? And you know, he used to ask that question 20 years ago when it was paper statements and you would check each box but his insight that he would gain off that was fairly profound that, well, if I've got somebody in here who's interviewing for a position that is managing the company's purse strings, and yet they don't take care of their own business, I'm a little worried about that. But it also comes down to just the basic principle of we need to have checks and balances in place. And in doing an acquisition, that fourth checklist item is just simply is this a deal from a number standpoint that checks those boxes and that balances out? And then last but not least, I've already given you this magic equation. And it's as simple as this. Does one plus one equal three? That are we going to, by more than one measure, look at these two businesses and by combining them together, have something that's greater than the sum of the parts? And if we do, then we're on to something. If we don't, that's all right, because there are many ways that you can grow and evolve as a business, and you don't want to get caught up 
in that sunk cost type fallacy that, well, we're this far into it, so we ought not to stop now. But no, it's quite the opposite, that unless there's a very clear and compelling story around how this is going to create a better outcome holistically and globally than having them separate, then you better take a step back. So that's my five-point checklist. And it evolves. It's not like I have them carved in granite and placed in a conference room in this building. Instead, those are a fluid list that the way we go about it is the same for each deal. But what we find is that it's also situationally dependent, that it takes turning over a lot of rocks sometimes to get the answers. And that's where the people fit is the one that's most important, that if you have a forthright partner who you're talking to them about buying their business up front, and they're not cagey, they're straightforward, they know their business, they understand what success and what good looks like, and more importantly, understand where they want to go, that's a big part of the people box that we can then check off and move on to the others. But if you've got someone who acts like they can't trust you, well, chances are you're going to have a tough time trusting them and getting to the point where you can be comfortable on those other checks. Chris, this is amazing. This is like, normally I'd be like, there's some really good nuggets in there. And I feel like we've got boulders here, just (laughs) on cliffside boulders. You talked about just now having a plan and looking forward. And that's so interesting and important. And I think that that segues really well into a question that I have about Batch and Bodega. Yeah. So you started this brand, you started this line in the middle of the pandemic. But more than that, we're talking about what you look for when you're acquiring a business. What made you want to start this line of business? I mean, obviously, you were like, there's a need, right? There has to be a need that our customers can value. But what made you say, well, I'm not finding it. Let's just start it. What got you there? Well, first off, and I can't speak in the singular when I refer to Batch and Bodega, the big moment, the light bulb moment that went off was a light bulb in the head of Jason Lukash somewhere in Danville, California. And I'll never forget where I was. And Jason pinged me. And I'll do my best Jason Lukash impersonation. Hey, man, you have five minutes. And so Jason pings me. Hey, man, you have five minutes. And we get on the phone. And Jason and I, The best way for me to put it is that we are so much alike in so many ways, but so opposite in other ways that we're about as complementary as can be. Jason is an irreverent innovator and just an absolute entrepreneur to the core. And at the same time, Jason has an absolute heart of gold and is one of the most gracious people you'll ever work with. And That's a rare set of traits. I know many serial entrepreneurs who are a little less than gracious. And yet if somebody has a question about the industry, a distributor has an issue with an order, they know they can text Jason and they're going to get feedback in real time and he's going to be on it. And I love that about Jason, that his head's always in the cloud in terms of what's next and what wild new direction we could potentially take the industry. And at the same time, He's that rare balance who, if there's an org audio order for uh, 50 box ands that needed to be out for an event tomorrow, well, Jason's going to make very certain that those get out as well. So one day Jason called me and uh, yeah, five minutes, sure. And he said, 
I think I've got something here. And he walked me through the straw man of Batch and Bodega, including the brand name. I mean, it was that fully baked and credit to Jason that it wasn't just a cocktail napkin rendering. It was a fairly developed plan for how HPG could come into the snack business, but do so with some originality. And that's really the question. When I talked about authority, what authority could we bring? Because clearly we hadn't been producing snacks for as long as we've been producing hub pins in Braintree, Massachusetts. So what is it that, that gives us the ability to come in and right off the bat, earn credibility and more importantly, earn trust, which in the end converts to business. And the answer was just simply that we're going to go about it in a way that is unique relative to the other competitors, at least those that we're aware of. And we never claim to invent where we don't have proof that we have, but certainly we do our best to innovate. And in the case of Batch and Bodega, I give Jason and his team, his very talented team based in Danville, California, all the credit in the world because what they sought to do was open up HPG's addressable market, which is one of the keys to any business over time. And you can look at Google as an example. They started off with one product, essentially, and they've become a part of our daily life. And they've done so by continually assessing and expanding their addressable market. You're looking for an email solution? Well, we can help you with that. Are you looking for a storage solution? We can help you with that. Oh, you're interested in cutting the cable. We can help you with that. That's an example of a company providing value-added ways to consumers who do business with it and in turn expanding their addressable market. Where with HPG's incursion into food, I had looked at a few different businesses for a potential acquisition in the food or snack-related category. And in each case, it was just simply, well, we've talked about the five general rules and one or more boxes weren't checked. And there just wasn't real conviction that when I've seen deals that made a lot of sense, generally speaking, we're going to go through the process, but you've got a pretty good feel up front that this makes sense. That if I met you on an elevator and you asked, why are you considering this deal? That it wouldn't take me a long, awkward pause and Perhaps uh, could you repeat the question a time or two to come up with an answer instead? No, this is obvious. And with Batch and Bodega, it was obvious right off the bat that Jason and his team were onto something. And what it came down to was that it truly was differentiated and it was smart. It reminds me, and, and are either of you familiar with the Allbirds brand of shoes? Yeah. Based in the Bay Area, made of wool. And I mean, you think about the shoe category that. I'm sure many people have looked at it over the last certainly 10 or 15 years and said, why would I even consider mounting an incursion into that category? But Allbirds did. And they did with a delightful product, but there are plenty of delightful products. A delightful product with smart marketing, with brilliant execution, with great customer service, and at the end of the day, all wrapped up in a tightly knit, well-executed package. What we sought to do with Batch and Bodega was bring an Allbirds-like experience to the promotional snacking business. And that was part of the initial discussion that Jason and I, I had got my first pair of Allbirds back in 2016. And I became somewhat evangelical about the brand and experience and come to find out that my brother in California, Jason, had become a devotee around the same time. 
And we have both wanted to explore what was it that made this work? How is it they're disrupting the shoe business? And what lessons can we learn and apply to our own lives and our own businesses? So that was a part of it as well, because that's a big part of what I've seen is successful in running an innovative business. There are many incredible inventions that are sitting under tarps in an inventor's mom's basement. And the bottom line is that in order to have something truly succeed in the marketplace, you have to have a well-rounded approach. It needs to be innovative and thoughtful, but also meaningful to the end user, strike an emotional response, really connect. And with Batch and Bodega, that was really the DNA level brand ethos that we were ascribing to. And I know that this all sounds fuzzy and aspirational. And well, Chris, that's obvious and common sense. It is right up until you try and do it. And that's where the art meets the science. The Batch and Bodega started with all these defining aesthetics that it is going to be a brand that strikes an emotional chord. It needs to connote a smartness when you interact with the brand. This degree of, oh, wow, I'm at the cool kids table of the lunchroom by virtue of knowing about this brand. That was a big part of it. And if a brand tries too hard to do that, it generally fails and backfires. It's like somebody who's on social media and just trying a little too hard. Where alternatively, if a brand or an individual or a company is just interesting, and they're interesting because they know what they are, and they're good with it, and they fly that flag proud and high, that's where the real magic is. And that's Fashion Bodega's corner, that are we ever going to include cheese and crackers with a little red stick inside of it? Well, if we can find an artisanal version of it with brie and gluten-free crackers that have seeds embedded in them that only monks can produce in northern Croatia, well, that's interesting. That's Batch and Bodega. I mean, this is what we're all about. It's something with the story because it's just like us here today. I mean, I could give you the most boring, dry, here's section two, subsection A on what it takes to successfully buy an integrated business. But by the end of it, this would be an incredible sleep aid for our listeners. Alternatively, if we can tell a story and tell a story through our brands and tell a story through our interactions and doing business, that's what makes it memorable. That's what makes you want to come back because it's an experience instead of just a transaction. And that was the founding DNA of Batch and Bodega. And you asked me about this one, I'm particularly passionate because it was a heck of a bet. I mean, here we were in the midst of a global pandemic, and we're going to celebrate Batch and Bodega's first birthday of its brand introduction here within the next month to the marketplace. Well, that was quite the time to bring a brand to life. We, of course, launched it at PPAI Expo in Las Vegas in early 2020, but that was a sneak peek. And then, of course, the world went into hibernation. So to continue forward with that brand and to have it hit the way that it did, I'm very passionate about it. And I give all the credit in the world to our batch team, who all these factors that I shared with you, all the abiding aesthetics and the integrity with which they brought this brand to light, that's why it's been a success. And frankly, that's what it takes to birth a new brand and to have it really matter with customers. Because I've got news for anybody listening to this podcast. If your business, if your brand 
if your product doesn't really matter to you, it's not going to matter to your customers. But if you really are passionate about it, you believe, and you're sending your peers or supervisor or subordinates or friends texts at two in the morning on a Thursday because you've just stumbled upon the most incredible world can't live without fill in the blank. Well, that's the type of team that builds great brands. I love that. I'm so interested as well as the two different things on the branding. I know Jason's brain works kind of crazy and in the best kind of way. And when you look at Batch Medajit, it became fully formed out of his head. But did you have concerns in terms of its cohesion with your other brands? Or do you see them as they all operate with their own stories and Batch of Medega is its own story within that? Or was thought going into it has to feel like an HPG product? Yeah, the real key here is tight but loose. That at the same time that we launched at least the sneak peek of Batch and Bodega at PPAI 2020, we also had the unveiling party of HPG. And HPG, an acronym for Hub Promotional Group, was really birthed with the idea that there is a certain expectation that will be connoted when HPG is in the conversation. And that's more where the science comes in, that we're going to be an efficient trading partner. We're going to have social and product compliance that is at or above any top level industry standard. We're going to conduct ourselves with integrity and with honesty. We're above all going to be a responsible partner. All of that was part of the HPG founding principle set as we birthed that brand as a standalone entity. That HPG became the umbrella under which the Orgadios or the Debcos would continue to do what it is that they had been so successful at in the past, but with more air cover, so to speak, from HPG. So the answer to Batch and Bodega was that Batch and Bodega basically became to snacks and foods what Orgadio was to electronics and technology. The idea that we can come into a category, we're going to apply some smart thinking, marketing, and innovating in terms of product and solutions. But it's going to be from an executional standpoint and from an overall ease of doing business with standpoint an HPG experience, meaning that we're not perfect. Any supplier that claims perfection, well, let me know how that goes. Instead, it's a matter of always working toward the perfect and taking our business very personally and very seriously. So that's where the other side of this equation is what we've talked about is a lot of art, that the art behind birthing a brand is, is it going to resonate emotionally with those that engage with it? What senses is it going to appeal to? In the case of Atrium Bodega, it opened up an entirely fun new world for us that in the past we hadn't had any edible products or very few. And in this case, we were building an entire brand around delighting the taste buds. Yeah. But while we delighted the taste buds, we had to delight the eyes. We had to delight the ears. We had to delight the sense of touch as you engage with the packaging. We had to delight each of these senses. Well, that's where the science then starts to come in. And that's where HPG comes in. They think of HPG as the country and each of the brands as the states. I love to travel. As my mother has put it, 
I eat my way through wherever I go. And the reason for that is that, let's say I'm in New Orleans. I'm going to want to get a po' boy. I'm going to want some barbecued shrimp. I'm going to want a low country boil or something like that. Just because the experience oftentimes, again, is multi-sensory. And I'm still in America. I'm still under the stars and stripes. And yet that experience in that moment is decidedly different than when I'm at Hub Pen and I'm down the street from my favorite clam chowder in the world. Or if I go up to Maine and have some incredible seafood there, still in America, but boy, it's an entirely different experience than what I had in New Orleans. Well, the same can be said of HPG because the experience with each of those brands is different in terms of what is delightful. But the abiding principles, the high-level freedoms, the high-level promises are all there. And that's the real art and science coming together in birthing a brand like Batch and Bodega, that it's going to have its own flair, its own dialect, its own delightful uniqueness. But it's under the banner of HPG, which provides, again, a set of promises and with it a set of expectations that you're not sending an order and hoping that it shows up on time or perhaps not covered in mold or past its expiration date or without the proper product safety and compliance documentation. That's where the one hand then meets the other and why those entities exist within the same ecosystem that HPG will continue to be the umbrella entity, if you will, with each one of the brands representing the Boston Clam Chowder or the New Orleans gumbo, or the California, my favorite, our office in Danville, just down the street from it, I get poke there. And we've had several poke summits, and it's only at that office. I don't get much poke at our facilities in Texas. Yeah. (laughs) But each one of those, they have their own unique flair and dialect and what works. And my job as chief executive of this company is to make sure that from an overall, call it the constitutional level, the federal level that we're executing, that we're from a technology standpoint where we need to be, from a compliance standpoint where we need to be, but that while we're doing that, we never take the soul out of our brands and that the poke is still delightful as it ever was. I love that analogy of you're the country and they're the states because I think we watch a lot of mergers and they move them under the same brand quite quickly or over a period of time Mm -hmm. and try and make it look like they're all the same versus that analogy of don't take the soul, don't take the taste out of what makes each person special in that way. So keeping that analogy going, how do you bring in the regulations and the taxes on everything? Do you move everyone to the same CRM platform? Like, How do you do your onboarding when you bring in a company? And like, where have you seen an obstacle for that? Yeah, it's a great question. And the answer is that it's situationally dependent. That in some cases, it's a fairly rapid transformation from a system standpoint. In other cases, depending on what's going on in that business at that time, we may take a more long-term transition strategy. I'll give you a case in point. Debco, our Canadian subsidiary, is operating on their own system because of some unique elements within the Debco infrastructure. And what we didn't want to do, Debco, as again, a case in point, has at the PPPC awards has won the large supplier award, I believe, like 
20, they might as well change the trophy and just have it say Debco. I believe it's 23 times. Don't quote me on that. <laughs> it's a lot. Yeah. Every year they're up there and I argue, I'm like, where's the small company one? Because I'm not competing against Debco in that space. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and I use this as a case in point because it's funny because I've been asked this question a few times. And whenever I listen to a podcast, I generally have my baloney meter on 10. That if somebody's telling me what they think I want to hear to inspire confidence, and I know it's baloney, it'll start pinging. So in this case, I'm giving a real world example of where our textbook says everybody should be on the same system. But the reality is, no, if you truly are living the Hippocratic Oath of first and foremost, don't screw up what's working. Well, Debco is a great case in point that we're on an ERP across all of our American or U.S. subsidiaries. And Debco has been in the HPG ecosystem for longer than some of those U.S. subsidiaries that are now on the same system. But what we've been very careful of is Jurassic Park. Could we move Debco onto that system? Yes, we could. Should we? Probably not right now because there are other factors. If I want to continue having that large supplier award every year inscribed with Debco, then we've got to start with that fundamental question. Does this benefit the end user? Does this benefit the distributor? Does this benefit all the constituents who are counting on us to do our jobs? And it hasn't been as clear cut that some of the technologies and tools that are resident within their system today at Debco are unique for the way that they're doing business relative to the businesses that are in the U.S., part of HPG. So we've taken a longer-term approach that we're making the necessary adjustments, testing them, testing them again, and then we'll roll out that system integration. But it's something that, to answer your first question, the process is situationally dependent, and we first and foremost ask the question, Is this going to put us closer or further from our mission of delighting our constituents? Simple as that. Something that I've been watching, Chris, with HPG is your automation. And speaking about your constituents, not just your customers. Constituents meaning the people that work for your organization. How do you balance that? How do you balance moving forward with technology, the batch and bodega automation, which frankly, is a whole podcast onto its own. I think it's just amazing to watch. What does that look like from the inside? Well, it's really, for lack of a better way of putting it, something that we have, when I first came into this position, I was at an industry roundtable. It was put up on stage at an industry event. And there were a few of us. And each of us, when asked the question, what is it that you're going to focus on or invest in? within your business over the next 12 to 24 months, everybody said technology. So it was kind of like the easiest answer to give that, oh, I'm going to invest in technology. Oh, well, he said he's going to invest in technology. So I am too. Well, she said it also. So I'm double investing in technology. But the reality of it is, what does that mean? And how is it benefiting our end user? And so the batch and bodega automations, for those listening who aren't familiar with what we're talking about, We've created some custom catalog tools that you literally can drop an end user logo into a catalog that color matches and provides for near production quality level prints from your PC or Mac or tablet or phone. And 
that type of technology is what we're looking for that, oh, wow, where was this for the last 20 years is the type of feedback I've been getting when I interact with friends in the industry that you guys actually have come up with some innovative ways of making us more efficient. And that's really what we're looking for is from a tech standpoint, Jurassic Park, like I said, they're going to put it on my tombstone. There's a lot of gee whiz things we can do. And we try and we're not perfect at it. I mean, anybody who's innovating is going to have a batting average that's less than they want it to be, or they're not being honest, or they're not taking enough chances. And in our case, we're taking a fair number of chances. But at the end of the day, it's always with one abiding and defining criteria. And it's, are we making ourselves easier to do business with? Is this going to be something that reputationally, from an HPG standpoint, we talked about what HPG is and isn't. HPG itself is not a brand. This isn't an HPG pen. And HPG is not going to put its name on this pen because HPG is that overlying promise that you're going to get smart technology that is thoughtfully incorporated into our relationship. But, and this is a, a big but, it's not going to be at the expense of the relationship. And that's important. And it's a good jumping off point for what we didn't do during the pandemic that I had. It was interesting. I was, of all places, at Disneyland the second weekend of March. And it was the last weekend that they were open in Southern California before shutting down. And so I'm guessing that you being in LA, Andrea, you probably can look back at that same weekend and think, wow, that was kind of the last time things were normal there for some time. So I'm at Disneyland. I'm there with my wife and our kids and some family. And I had planned on returning to Salt Lake City, Utah, where my family resides, and then potentially going on to Boston later that week where our headquarters is, but I hadn't pinned down my plans exactly because it was depending on our CFO's plans at the time as well and a couple of other variables. Well, over the course of those few days, and I have some quirky rules of life. And here's rule number one that, again, this is tombstone type stuff. I love churros, but I will only eat a churro whilst at Disneyland or Disney World because Otherwise, I would probably be a remorseless churro-eating machine like 24-7. <laughs> but Disney's something that you know I only do every now and then, so I can keep my churro addiction under somewhat of a reasonable governor. Yeah. So I had a churro in my left hand. You know, I have one of those Mickey popsicles in my right hand, and life was great. I'm like a 44-year-old kid at Disney World just running from ride to ride, exhausting, you know, adult and child family members all the while and having an absolute blast. And I'm doing that and I'm starting to get texts and messages from industry friends, from fellow CEOs in the industry and, and from family members saying, hey, so this this COVID thing, it's starting to hear there may be some lockdowns and some restrictions. What do you think? And by the end of the day, it was churros down and it was all right, family. This just got very real. We're going to get you home and I'm going to Boston and I'm going to sit down with our CFO and our head of sales, Trina Bicknell, and other members of our senior leadership team, our head of supply chain, Jing Rong. And between 
that group determine HPG's response. And we had already, from a supply chain standpoint, made some hedges and had brought in ample inventory. What we didn't anticipate was that by the end of that week, of our nine locations, eight would be forced closed due to local restrictions. So here, we're a manufacturer. We have plants that it's not that you can work from home when your job is to put a logo on this pen. That has to happen with the equipment on the production floor of one of our facilities. And that was a challenge the likes of which I hadn't ever even contemplated. I mean, when I would doomsday, it's, well, we had an earthquake, but that was in one location. We had a fire that was in one location. We had whatever the case may be, but eight of nine locations, 89% of our facilities effectively shut down. Hadn't really game planned that scenario out, but by the end of the week, it was reality. So needless to say, I was wishing I was back eating a churro right about then, but there were some decisions to be made. And those decisions, it was something, again, without precedent, but we had to ask the question of what is it that our constituents expect of us? And what is it ultimately that we can do to ensure that we're living up to that? I've talked about that HPG promise, the HPG expectation that's set. What is it that we can do to live up to that? And in this case, it was, well, our sales and marketing team, they're going to wrap their arms around our distributor partners. I guess the world shut down and so too did we. We're going to go home and you know start meditating a lot or start cooking or make a garden or whatever else people did during COVID. Instead, we very quickly, and all credit to Trina Bicknell, our head of sales, she very quickly recognized that this is going to become a virtual environment. She came up with a virtual trade show program that, again, using technology was a quick way to wrap our arms around our customers and our partners. And in so doing, it was a real differentiator. We didn't lay off our sales and marketing team. Instead, we continued to invest and wrapped our arms around those groups, even though it was effectively a pens down moment in the industry. And in some cases, our ability to produce, we stayed close with our customers. The idea being that a company that knows what it is and is here for the long term and isn't short term in its thinking will make decisions that at the time are tough, but in the long run are proven to be absolutely the right decisions. So by continuing to invest in new brands such as Batch and Bodega, invest in people and making sure that those people have the tools to continue to connect with their friends and partners in the industry, that's the type of environment within which one-on-one will equal three. And when we look at what it is ultimately that's made it work over the last nearly 70 weeks since things got very real, it was wrapping our arms around our employees, putting their health and safety first, but then equipping them with the tools to continue to engage with our partners and customers. We haven't exited the pandemic the same company that we entered it instead. And this is cliched, but in our case, it's absolutely true. We acquired another business. We birthed an incredibly successful new brand of Batch of Bodega, and we've become a more effective team because we had our people's backs and they in turn had our customers' backs. We figured out creative ways to stay safe and to resume production. I'm pleased to report that as of today, we're recording this on the 28th of June in 2021, we don't have a single case of workplace transmission of COVID 
within any of our nine facilities across North America. So we didn't make any compromises to that value statement that I shared with you earlier, alluded to. But all the while, we lived up to our promises to our customers and to our employees alike. I love that. So you're in so many different actual states rather than your companies being the different states. But that idea of the pandemic kind of flattened things, it put us all virtual and how you've embraced it and kept everyone consistent that way as well. Yeah, absolutely. Like that must have been interesting, but a challenge at the same time. So looking back, would there have been something you would have done differently for a certain company or a certain process where you're like, oh, if we just gotten X over here faster, is there anything that you look back on? Well, it's interesting. And that's my favorite question is the postmortem. Yeah. What is it that we would do different? Because you should always be evaluating that. And my answer has changed with time because there were other suppliers who really got on the PPE bandwagon and we were late to the PPE party and even then only one foot in. And our thinking all the while was that we talked about the discipline within which we apply our processes when it's time to birth a new brand or to acquire another business. And just because there was a global pandemic didn't excuse us from asking the question, are we really adding value by doing this? And so I'll give you a case in point. We didn't bring in the free world supply of overseas produced masks or sanitizers. It just wasn't something that we felt we had long-term authority in or that we would be particularly well positioned to be a great trading partner. Instead, it was a crisis. It was a pandemic and people were behaving as if it was a crisis or a pandemic. And particularly in those PPE or sanitizer related categories. So we try to take more of a long-term approach than instead of focusing on how we could get our hands on a million gallons of sanitizer. It's, do we want to buy the ability to just produce our own over the long term? And that's what we decided to do. And in terms of masks, it was, well, do we want to find some bootleg supply of whatever masks coming out of this country? No. You know what? We've got two factories in Texas that produce can coolies, and these are our HPG-owned facilities. Doesn't look like the demand for our coolies is going to be where it has been historically. Why don't we convert those lines to produce our own high-quality USA-made masks, something where we could add authority? and. What I will say is that, if anything, about maybe a year and a couple of months ago, I was feeling like, well, you stuck to your principles there, Chris, and you've got some other peers in the industry who really jumped on PPE and got really creative and chartered 747s to fly in this or that. And at the time, it made it look like I was perhaps a little slow to that game. And I think that would have been a fair assessment. At the same time, as history has shown, that was absolutely a once in a lifetime, at least we hope, set of circumstances. And it didn't persist that over time, I mean, right now, many of those products that were the hottest commodities ever, they're being given away because warehouses are full of them. And we're now producing an unbelievable number of coolies every day at that facility. And we were able to shift back to making the coolies We kept jobs. We continued to keep those production lines open. And it kept the machines and operators well-seasoned for when the industry came back, which it certainly has. And likewise, on the sanitizer and PPE side, what we have now is a facility that can produce our own 
formulations as needed and be the home of new innovations. And we didn't really get caught up in the hysteria. A year ago, I would have said, you know what, Kate, I'm going to be totally honest. And here's my mea culpa. We were late to the PPE game to jump on that bandwagon. In the end, I feel pretty good. Could we have made some money? Yeah, we could have. Would we have made a difference? I don't really think so in terms of doing good. I don't know that we could have, we would have just simply been a source for a product that others would have provided that same source. So in terms of global good, I can't say that we would have done much global good. And so it's really a matter of, did we stay true to our long-term principles? Yes, and I'm glad we did. That's amazing. What do you see the future for HPG in the industry? And what do you think consolidation means for the future of the industry? Is becoming one of this giant countries something that has to happen for companies? Or do you see there's still space for smaller companies? And where do you see HPG's role with it? Yeah, great question. And my answer is going to be given and viewed through the lens of my own experience. I've spent a lot of my career in consumer packaged goods and consumer packaged goods, the acquisition waves, the likes of which we're seeing in the promotional industry today, they occurred decades ago. And I came into a segment of consumer packaged goods where I was told, A, that train has already left the station. B, you're competing against giants who are going to squash you. And C, if you're still dumb enough to go after this, even after A and B, then that's a you problem because you really have no business being in this category. Well, we came in and we disrupted it and we created a really great business and one that more than competed against the big competitors and forces in the industry. It flourished and won. And I think that same thing is going to happen in the promotional industry, that certainly they're going to be very competitive and very compelling companies that gain scale within the industry. But all the while, you're going to have the Orgadios of the world. That Orgadio, it started in Mike Simzak's garage, and it became a force to be reckoned with within a corner of the promotional industry, and to this day continues to be, albeit under the HPG umbrella. The point being that if acquisitions have discipline and have that laser-like focus, on asking the question, is the customer going to be better off? Then yes, they're going to be successful generally in the long run, not always. But what I'm pleased about, and if this podcast is being edited, let's go ahead and edit this section out because I don't want this competitive <laughs> secret to get out. The bottom line is that most acquisitions don't necessarily have that philosophy. And as a result, what I loved, and this is where, again, going through my own experience, I used to love it when I was the nimble up-and-comer in an industry and a big competitor bought another big competitor because it spelled distraction. It spelled that there was blood in the water. And I may have been a little fish, but I could come in and perhaps get a little bit of what they had been pursuing because they were going to be focused on their own internal politics and integration and all the things that the customer, frankly, doesn't care about, A, and B, is likely to be offended by because of the distraction that it all represents. So my answer to you is that there likely will continue to be an acquisitional wave within our industry. But that wave by no means precludes 
the smart, the capable, the determined, the entrepreneurial from doing what they always do, which is remind the big guys that they better not lose sight of what makes the customer happy in the end. I don't even know if we can end on a better note than that. That was fantastic. I think a lot of people really look at it as sort of like, are we going to become this homogenous place? And I think you just made the best argument for why the innovation and size doesn't matter. Strategy, knowing what you're doing and who you're doing it for and how you're making lives better. That's really what I'm taking away from this. This is amazing, Chris. Is there anything else that you would love the Promo Kitchen audience to know? Just that if we've learned nothing else, Absence has made the heart grow fonder. I can't wait to interact with you in person in the coming weeks and months. And if nothing else, I'm more bullish and excited about the prospects for our industry generally than I ever have been, that there's definitely a pent-up demand, and it's going to be a fun next year or two. And I look forward to working with you to make sure that a high tide within the industry really does raise all boats. Love it. That's perfect. Well, thank you, Chris. And thank you, Andrea, for being part of this. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to join you today. Thanks again for listening to this edition of the Promo Kitchen podcast. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, you can always get involved in the Promo Kitchen community by visiting us at promokitchen.org. You can also show your support by donating to our cause at promokitchen.org slash donate. We would sincerely appreciate it. See you next time. Thank you.